Welcome to Renal Cell Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Robert Mozer for his perspective on new systemic strategies in management of this disease, and he began our conversation by providing an overview of the current impact from a public health perspective. Renal cell carcinoma afflicts about 50,000 people each year in the United States. It's the eighth most common cancer in men. It usually occurs in individuals in their 60s, and it's predominantly a male cancer with a male-female ratio of approximately 2 to 1. The standard treatment for renal cell carcinoma has been, for many years, surgery with surgical resection of the kidney primary tumor being the cornerstone of management and curative therapy for people that have localized disease. One of the difficulties with renal cell carcinoma is that it's considered one of these silent cancers, and there aren't symptoms that lead to early diagnosis. So for that reason, many patients present with advanced metastatic disease at initial diagnosis or may relapse with metastasis following a nephrectomy. For those individuals, for many years, this was considered to be a very difficult cancer to treat. Many different chemotherapy drugs were tried, and none of them provided clinical benefit to patients. It was always considered as the model for the resistant cancer to chemotherapy. Until recently, the mainstay of systemic treatment for metastasis was immunotherapy with the cytokines interferon and interleukin-2. Both of these were recognized as having some level of activity in the 1980s and until recently remained really the only agents that showed activity in this disease. In the 1990s, through careful work by laboratory-based physicians, it was recognized that there is a gene that's frequently mutated in renal cell carcinoma. It's called the von Hippel-Lindau gene. It was originally discovered by characterization of tumors in a rare familial form of renal cell cancer, but it was recognized in more than three-quarters of sporadic renal cell cancer, there's inactivation of this gene. The downstream effects of the gene are to prevent tumor growth and blood vessel formation or angiogenesis. So as angiogenic targeted therapies were developed, it was recognized that this would be clearly a cancer which these should be studied in. And that's really the treatments that are paying off and have been now implemented in standard of care and represent progress for this malignancy. Can you talk about what the research is that's come out over the last couple of years and how that's affecting the algorithm for management? The new targeted therapies were initially studied in patients that had had prior treatment with interferon or interleukin-2 and had progressive disease. The first, really, that was studied was bevazivimab, which is a neutralizing antibody to VEGF, and it was initially studied in a small randomized trial that was reported by Jim Yang from the NCI in patients that had progressed on high-dose interleukin-2. In that randomized phase 2 trial, there was a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival for the patients treated with bevazivimab at 10 milligrams per kilogram every two weeks compared to placebo. The significance of the study is noted by the fact that it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and really served as proof of principle that we were on the right track with these angiogenesis-targeted therapies in renal cell carcinoma. 
The next agent that was studied is serafinib. It's a multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitor that has multiple effects on cells and blood vessels, but its effect in renal cell cancer is believed to be inhibition of vascular endothelial growth factor receptor and platelet-derived growth factor receptor. It was originally studied in a rather complicated phase two design. It's called a randomized discontinuation phase two trial. It's designed to study drugs in which it's felt that probably their effect will be more disease stabilization or prolongation and progression-free survival rather than producing classical responses like many of the cytotoxic had been for other malignancies. And in that trial, there was excitement from the investigators very early on because they saw tumor regressions in patients who were included in that trial with renal cell cancer. Now, when the study was done, there was about 90 patients with renal cancer that were treated. It was a clinical trial that encompassed multiple histologies, but one of the major components was renal cell carcinoma. And about two-thirds of patients, there was some degree of tumor shrinkage with about one out of 10 patients achieving a classic response. And in fact, the study was a positive study showing prolongation of progression-free survival for the serafinib compared to the placebo arm. That study led to a large randomized phase three trial called the TARGET trial in which the patients who had clear cell histologies and who had progressed on prior therapy, which was usually interferon or interleukin-2, were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to serafinib versus placebo. The trial is the largest trial to date conducted worldwide in renal cancer, including over 900 patients. And at the second interim analysis, it was noted there was a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival over placebo. So at that point, the data was collected. The response rate was predictably about 10% for serafinib, but there was about a doubling in progression-free survival for serafinib compared to placebo. The trial was deemed positive, and the patients who were assigned to the placebo arm were allowed a crossover to the active serafinib drug. And how do those data compare to what you saw with sunitinib? The sunitinib was originally studied early on in phase one trials. There's very limited phase one data with sunitinib because of the fact that there was a high response rate seen in patients even in the phase one trials. In the phase one trial, four of seven patients had partial response with renal cell cancer, leading to very early development in phase two trials. The first trial that was conducted was a five-center single-arm trial of sunitinib that was administered at the standard dosing of 50 milligrams given on the four weeks on, two weeks off schedule. And in the 63 patients, about 40% achieved a partial response with the median progression-free survival being on the order of eight months, comparing favorably to the two to three months that would be expected with inactive agents as part of historical control. So with regard to the further development, there was a second larger pivotal single-arm trial that was conducted with response as the primary endpoint in second-line treatment, And there was a large phase three trial in first-line therapy of sunitinib compared to interferon alpha. What about temsorolimus? Temsorolimus 
is a unique anti-cancer agent. It's called an mTOR inhibitor. It's the first of its class. It was originally studied in renal cell carcinoma as a part of a randomized phase two trial of three different dose levels that were given to heavily pretreated patients. In that study, it was recognized that the response rate was low, about 10%, but there were many patients that had stabilization of disease with the median progression-free survival being about six months and the overall survival about 12 months. This was better than the historical control. And when subsets were looked at this analysis, it appeared that the group that did the best were those patients that were classified as poor risk by the Memorial Sloan Kettering risk grouping. This led to a large pivotal phase three trial of Temsorilimus alone versus interferon alone plus the combination of Temsorilimus plus interferon. And that study was conducted in patients with poor risk features as first-line treatment. It wasn't only confined to clear cell carcinoma. There were patients with other renal cancer histologies. And the second interim analysis for that study showed an improvement in survival for temsorilimus over monotherapy with interferon or the combination of temsorilimus plus interferon. Can you talk about the data that was presented at ASCO looking at bevacizumab with interferon? The initial studies with bevacizumab was the small randomized phase two trial that showed that there was clearly activity for that agent in this disease. There has been two large phase three trials of bevacizumab given in first-line therapy for patients with metastatic renal cancer. One was conducted in the United States through the cooperative group mechanism. It was a randomized phase three trial of bevacizumab plus interferon versus interferon alone. That study completed accrual. Survival was the primary endpoint of the trial, and data for that study has not yet been presented in a medical meeting or published. The second study was conducted in Europe. It was an industry-sponsored trial, and it was a phase three trial of interferon plus bevacizumab versus interferon plus placebo. The primary endpoint of that trial was survival. It was conducted only in clear cell histology, and it was a randomized one-to-one randomization. The interim analysis were set such that progression-free survival would be looked at and could be considered as a positive endpoint. And that's what happened. In the interim analysis, it was noted that the median progression-free survival for bevacizumab plus interferon was significantly longer than for interferon plus placebo. Can you kind of put this all together? I kind of want to take that, what you've just gone through, kind of as the base of some of the key research that's been done and track out both what that means in terms of clinical practice and what it means in terms of the next generation of clinical trials. Let's talk about clinical practice. What's your own personal algorithm in terms of first, second, third line therapy selection of patients? And what do you consider sort of acceptable alternatives? In the late 1990s, we did an analysis of prognostic factors for patients with renal cell cancer to see if we can group patients according to prognosis. And the purpose for this was to help facilitate clinical trial design and interpretation. The analysis was initially done on 670 patients. 
that were treated at our center with various histologies, and it was later refined to an analysis on about 480 patients treated with interferon. We found five different risk factors that predicted outcome, and the patients were grouped according to these risk factors into favorable, intermediate, and poor risk. The risk factors included calcium level, lactate dehydrogenase level, performance status, and time from initial diagnosis to start a therapy. And historically, the patients that had zero risk factors, the favorable risk group, had a median survival of about 29 months. Patients with one or two risk factors were considered intermediate risk, and their median survival was close to 20 months. And the poor risk group had three or more risk factors, and their average survival was on the order of six months. So with the studies of the new targeted therapies, these risk factors were incorporated into the trials and are important in the new paradigm for treating renal cell carcinoma. Both the sunitinib and the temsorilimus studies were conducted in untreated patients. The temsorilimus was strictly targeted at the poor-risk population. With a large phase three trial showing a survival benefit for temsorilimus in poor-risk patients, that has now become an important part of the paradigm, and many consider temsorilimus as the optimal treatment for patients with poor-risk features. Do you? I think with the phase three data, strong in that sense that temsorilimus should be the number one choice for the poor-risk population. What's been seen in terms of side effects and toxicity, and what have you seen yourself? Temsorilimus is generally well tolerated. The major side effects that have been reported are the common ones are asthenia, skin rash, and thrombocytopenia. But in general, it's generally well tolerated outpatient therapy. The difficulty with temsorilimus, however, is that it's administered IV and given weekly so that patients who are treated with temsorilimus need to be evaluated at their physician's office and receive a weekly infusion of this on an ongoing basis as long as they're responding. Is there any reason to think that biologically the poor prognosis tumors act differently, respond to therapy differently? There has been some studies that have suggested that the group of patients that have poor-risk renal cancers have some markers that coincide or are associated with responsiveness to an mTOR inhibitor. So there has been a suggestion that there's a biologic rationale for a particular sensitivity for poor-risk renal cancer to temsorilimus. But these studies are small. They've been largely hypothesis-seeking. So this is really an area that needs to be explored in a larger independent data set. What's your second-line therapy in the poor prognosis patients? Currently, very few patients are receiving cytokines first line with the positive data for sunitinib, for serafinib, for temsorilimus. The only cytokine that still has a role in first-line treatment is high-dose interleukin-2, which is given to a minority of patients. For the most part, the optimal therapy for most patients first line is sunitinib based on its high level of activity in a randomized phase three trial that encompassed all the MSKCC risk groups. Granted, in that trial, the majority had 
favorable and intermediate risk features, but there were patients with poor risk features as well. With that study in particular, cytokines are no longer given on a low-dose outpatient schedule. So second-line treatment now is primarily for patients that have progressed on sunitinib, and there is a paucity of data with regard to efficacy of agents following progression to sunitinib. For the most part, in clinical practice, the patients have been treated with serafinib as second-line treatment. Since the large pivotal phase three trial of serafinib was conducted in second-line patients, and also there has been enthusiasm from both patients and physicians for the targeted therapies. So for the most part, the patients who progressed on sunitinib are offered serafinib. What's occurred more recently in the United States is with the approval of temsorilimus, one of the questions that we have is, what's the role for temsorilimus in second-line therapy following sunitinib treatment? It's attractive because temsorilimus has a different mechanism of action and demonstrated activity in a poor-risk group. And so I think that this remains an option now in clinical practice, that patients could receive temsorilimus second or third line. But as of yet, we don't have hard data for the best agent in second line or the actual efficacy. And in fact, this is an area of intense investigation, and there's a large phase three trial that opened accrual just within the last month or so ago, its old study of serafinib versus temsorilimus in second-line therapy following progression of sunitinib. So this study we think will accrue rapidly. It's a worldwide trial and will give us good information about what's the best agent to use in this setting. What about Bev? Well, currently, Bevazivimab is not approved for the use of renal cell carcinoma in the United States. There certainly is intriguing and promising data from the available studies. The clinical trial by Yang et al. demonstrated improvement in progression-free survival following cytokine treatment. And the clinical trial, the large phase three presented by Bernardus Scudier at ASCO, showed that interferon plus bevazivimab has a strikingly improved progression-free survival compared to interferon alone. In terms of current practice, this study could potentially lead to regulatory approval and community use, but I don't believe we're at that point yet in the United States. Cost and reimbursement issues aside, what's your sort of gut instinct right now in terms of efficacy and side effects of, let's say, sunitinib versus single-agent bevacizumab? The bevacizumab first-line study was in combination with interferon. I think the efficacy data has to be regarded that way. The response rate reported by Bernardo Scudier was on the order of 30%, which is considerably higher than that of other bevazivimab studies as monotherapy in renal cancer. There was the Jim Yang study, which reported a 10% response rate for bevazivimab, and there was also a large randomized phase two trial in first-line therapy that was reported by Bukowski et al. in the Journal of Clinical Oncology of bevazivimab plus placebo versus bevazivimab plus tarceva. Now, that study showed no benefit for the addition of tarceva to bevazivimab, 
but it does give us our only look at the efficacy of bevazivimab monotherapy in first-line treatment. And in that study, the response rate for bevazivimab monotherapy was on the order of 10%, and the median progression-free survival was between eight and nine months. So those considerations lead me to believe that the efficacy data reported by Escudier must be considered in the context of combination of bevazivimab plus interferon. How would you compare the side effects and tolerability of sunitinib versus serafinib? Serafinib's attractive feature has been its toxicity profile. For the most part, there are very few grade 3 or 4 side effects associated with serafinib. Some patients can develop some mild increase in hypertension. Some patients can develop gastrointestinal toxicities, including GI. There isn't recognized blood count suppression that occurs in any frequency. The major side effect with serafinib is skin toxicity, and this is characterized by a rash either on the skin or the scalp and sores on the hands and the feet, which are now referred to as hand-foot skin reaction. This is the most problematic side effect associated with serafinib. These seem to occur in about 25 to 30% of patients, and frequently result in dose modification or dose delay. Outside of the skin toxicity, though, serafinib is relatively devoid of other toxicities. Sunitinib has been reported to have a higher level of associated toxicities. It can produce the hand-foot skin reaction, although my own experience has been that this occurs in a somewhat lesser population than the serafinib. But it has other side effects, and these are predominantly fatigue and blood count suppression, which can be significant, as well as diarrhea. So the fatigue that's associated with sunitinib generally occurs early on, and then over time it usually seems to be ameliorated. The blood count suppression can impact on potentially ability to combine with other agents in studies, as well as anemia and related fatigue. And the diarrhea that's associated with sunitinib can interfere with quality of life, but it's generally controlled by medications. So the toxicity profile is more severe with sunitinib, but I think that it's clearly outweighed with benefits by the efficacy of the sunitinib in this disease. What about trials looking at combinations of biologics, particularly serafinib or sunitinib with bevacizumab? These new targeted therapies, they target the VHL downstream effects in angiogenesis. There are several that target the pathway at different locations. So one of the areas of interest has been to add various medicines together that attack the pathway at different points, hoping to improve the efficacy. So for example, the logical combinations would be the addition of an mTOR inhibitor to a VEGFR antagonist, or of an mTOR inhibitor to bevazivimab, or of a VEGFR antagonist with bevazivimab. There are many different combination studies that are underway to study these. Several of them have completed phase one trials, most notably the combination of temsorilimus and bevazivimab, or sunitinib, and bevazivimab and are moving into phase two trials. 
The hope is that there will be added efficacy with these combination, but the concern is that since these agents have overlapping toxicities, that by combinations the toxicity will be worse and it's not clear that there will be added benefit or there will be difficulty with delivering adequate doses because of the toxicity seen in the combinations. So I think this is certainly worthy of investigation. There is an effort underway, but it's not clear whether the best use of these medications will be by combination or proper sequencing. Can you talk a little bit about the issue of surgery in metastatic disease, both in the primary as well as the metastatic disease, which you've published on? The major surgical procedure that's considered in this setting is the cytoreductive nephrectomy. For those patients who present with localized renal cancers, all patients have a nephrectomy and then subsequently those unfortunate relapse with systemic disease. But for the population that present at initial diagnosis with a kidney primary in place and with metastasis, one of the issues has been whether there's a benefit of that patient undergoing a nephrectomy. It was originally raised as an issue in the 70s and 80s because it was recognized that in that setting a small proportion of patients had a spontaneous regression of the metastasis. It turns out it was a very small percentage, probably less than 1%, but it provided one of the rationales for the use of immunotherapy. And in the setting of immunotherapy, there were two large phase three trials that showed cytoreductive nephrectomy before treatment with interferon resulted in a longer survival compared to interferon alone with leaving the kidney primary in place. So that became an important part of standard of care. And as these new targeted therapies were studied, they were largely studied in patients who had had a nephrectomy since the population had had prior cytokine. The efficacy data that we now have is largely in patients that have had nephrectomies. And so I believe that for several reasons, the cytoreductive nephrectomy remains standard of care for this population. First, the efficacy data in patients with targeted therapy was largely developed in patients who had had a nephrectomy. Secondly, there are two large phase three trials showing a survival benefit for a cytoreductive nephrectomy and the setting of treatment with a marginally effective systemic therapy. And third, these targeted therapies have not yet been shown to be curative in the patients. For the most part, the patients with metastatic renal cancer progress at one time or another. And in this patient population, those patients that are receiving palliative care for renal cell cancer, the presence of a large renal primary can be particularly problematic with regard to care and cause difficulties with quality of life, as it often results in pain and hematuria, which can be very problematic. So I think that there's a real advantage to having the kidney primary taken out with initiation of systemic therapy. Now, that being said, those patients that undergo a cytorodectin nephrectomy have to undergo careful selection because certainly if the tumor is large and it's going to result in a high chance of morbidity for these patients then the kidney tumor should not be taken out at that point. The better approach would be to initiate the targeted therapy and then 
try to remove the therapy later if there was a response. So careful patient selection remains a very important factor when considering the cytoreductive nephrectomy. Now, how often, if at all, can these procedures be done laparoscopically? The two standard techniques for a nephrectomy are either an open procedure or a performance of a laparoscopy-directed nephrectomy. For the most part, the cytoreductive nephrectomies have been done by open nephrectomy because the tumors are often large and difficult to handle. The laparoscopy-directed nephrectomy has largely been used for the smaller tumors that are done in the initial diagnosis. What about surgery for metastatic disease? Metastectomy, I guess it's called. The metastectomies were largely utilized because of the fact that there weren't effective therapies, systemic therapies for renal cell carcinoma. There was never a randomized trial that showed a benefit. There were several series that suggested a prolonged survival for metastatectomy compared to historical control. The limitation of those, of course, is the fact that the patients had to be well enough to undergo surgery, to be deemed surgical candidates. So there are certainly limitations. But in the absence of effective systemic therapy, there really was little option at that point. The role for metastatectomy currently is if a patient has a solitary cytometastasis and there's a relatively long disease-free interval between initial diagnosis and the development of that metastasis, then I think it's certainly a reasonable approach. But it should be avoided in patients with multiple sites of metastasis or in whom the resection of the metastasis would put the patient at high risk for comorbidity. In those patients, use of a targeted therapy is warranted. I'm curious as you look back comparing where we are right now to maybe three, four years ago, I mean not very long ago when all these new studies came out, from a practical perspective, how much do you think this is really affecting survival, quality of life in the metastatic setting right now? Have we really changed the disease? I think that the discovery and the implementation of target therapies represents dramatic progress in this disease. It's changed the way we treat patients with renal cell cancer. It's allowed for considerable more options for treatment. The major endpoints we have to date for most of the trials is progression-free survival, and they show a sizable benefit in progression-free survival. For example, the phase three trial of sunitinib compared to interferon showed 150% benefit in progression-free survival for sunitinib compared to interferon. Now, the survival data is not yet available for that trial, but we would predict that we'll show a large benefit compared to the historical control with interferon alone. And in fact, other study with temsorilimus has shown a rather large survival benefit for temsorilimus compared to interferon. One of the other aspects of this treatment is the use of sequential therapy. And what we anticipate will happen in renal cancer is a similar situation to what we see in several of the other cancers like colorectal cancer, where a patient may benefit from one of these targeted therapies for a time, then progress, we'll be able to offer him a second, he'll benefit from that, and third and potentially a fourth. So I think that what we're going to see is a dramatic change in the overall survival for patients with metastatic renal cancer with the use of multiple targeted therapies. And 
We have four or five of these that are now shown benefit in phase three trials. There are more that are coming. So I think that we will continue to build upon this new approach and develop more and better therapies for our patients. Do you think you're seeing that in your practice? Do you think there's, you know, obviously it's sort of anecdotal, but do you get the feeling that people are living longer? Do you feel like you have better tools to control symptoms? Is it really made a practical difference? There's been a dramatic change in my own practice. My practice is limited to patients with renal cell cancer and one other GU malignancy. And in the past, had very few options to offer patients, and there was a very poor prognosis. We first started offering patients sunitinib on clinical trials back in 2003, and really the situation has changed dramatically for those patients with metastatic renal cancer, now with multiple options that are available to the patients. And in fact, some of the patients that we initiated therapy on clinical trials with sunitinib back in 2003 that would otherwise have been expected to have a very short prognosis are being maintained on chronic sunitinib therapy and continued remission for up to three years now. What about predictors or response to any of these new agents? Where are we with that? For the most part, these are divided into clinical and biologic The clinical predictors of response to the new targeted therapies are being evaluated since they were previously established from studies with cytokines or cytotoxics. The studies that we've done at our center suggest that the similar clinical features that predicted survival to the older therapies are also the same ones that predict outcome to sunitinib. So I suspect that we'll reevaluate some of the risk groupings and the risk factors. There may be some change over time, but for the most part, they will stay the same. There is a high interest in looking at biological predictive factors for these agents, and I think that's really a great opportunity for study that has been underutilized at this point. We don't at this point have biologic predictors that can direct standard therapy with targeted treatment, but studies at our center and many others are focusing on genetic abnormalities in renal cell carcinoma tumors and hoping that we can develop a marker that predicts success.